Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau heads to California this week for the Summit of the Americans, but he's remained silent over President Biden's move to exclude some countries. Was that a mistake? A new survey has found that Canadians are feeling stressed from soaring inflation, particularly grocery prices. Eddie Shepard is the Vice President of Insights with Leger Marketing, and uh, they've done some research on this. He's going to explain that to us. And why are some conservative leadership candidates engaging in what many people are calling a dangerous political courtship? We'll delve into that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Summit of the Americas gets underway today in the United States of America, but there's uh, some controversy involved in that. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is attending, of course, but he's not saying whether he supports U.S. President Joe Biden's decision to exclude Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba from the Summit of the Americas. Emily Jovesky has details. The Prime Minister is acknowledging that some of the countries in the Western Hemisphere are less like-minded than others. But Justin Trudeau says they all share a number of urgent issues, such as migration pressures, climate change, and recovering fully from the COVID-19 pandemic. All three are expected to be on the agenda at the week-long summit as the Prime Minister heads to Los Angeles today. On the way, he and Defense Minister Anita Anand are stopping in Colorado Springs, Colorado, for meetings with commanders and officials from NORAD, the Joint Command Continental Defense System slated for upgrade. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So, with his uh, concerns that the Prime Minister has expressed about who's excluded from this conference, uh, is that setting him apart, and, and how constructive and how much of a player can he be in a conference like that where there seems to be mixed opinions? I want to bring uh, Professor Wayne Petrosi into the conversation. Uh, Professor Petrosi, of course, is in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. You get a bunch of world leaders together like this, and the chances of having unanimity on every issue, I guess, is you know slim and none. Uh, but who's not there is is starting to become the story right now. Uh, the prime minister seems concerned about this. I know that you know Jabbing Singh uh, is the NDP federal leader, of course, is talking about this too. Is it a big deal at all? Well, you know, the the Americans, in in uh, diplomatically speaking, when it comes to Latin America, have a, have a really checkered history. When it comes uh, in terms of how they re- re- relate to various types of regimes within that region. So, with that in mind, I, I guess what the Prime Minister seems to be saying here is that if it were his uh, conference, if it were being held in Canada, he'd invite these people, notwithstanding uh, some of the concerns about human rights and some of these other issues. Uh, certainly, he would. And it seems that, you know, what the Americans seem to have, the approach they seem to have taken historically and this time as well, is if they are our autocrat who is abusing or not respecting human rights, we're okay with that. If they're not our autocrat and they have issues around human rights, we're not going to support them. So it's not as they're not consistent in terms of either the issue of human rights uh, and they're not consistent more, more generally. And then there's the problem that particularly democratic administrations face, is that always worried about this notion that they're being soft on on left-wing autocratic regimes. And so we got to prove the, the, the opposition in the United States wrong, and we got to be really tough on them. And, you know, so that plays in. And finally, the, especially in the case of Cuba, you know, we, we can't forget that uh, Florida is a swing state goes back and forth between the two parties. 
the Cuban vote is very, very important in Florida, and you don't want to do anything that might upset that vote and turn them against you. So therefore, we got to stand against Cuba right now. Uh, so there's, a, there's, I guess there's, I'm not trying to be naive, but there are political overtones uh, to a lot of these decisions that are being made. And, and I guess we have to expect that sort of thing, whether it's a G8 or whether it's the summit of the Americas, whatever the case might be. That's right. Uh, you know, they're, they're always right over your shoulder, those political considerations. And, uh, you know, the Biden administration has problems enough now heading into the midterms uh, this November. They really don't want to uh, create yet another issue in terms of their support base by being seen as pro-Cuban, uh, anti-Democrats, and therefore put some of their seats perhaps at risk in some of the Florida districts. Yeah, you'd have to figure that, I guess, if there was going to be some softening or the, perceived softening there. Uh, people like Marco Rubio would be jumping all over them, I guess, uh, come November during those midterms. But what, what does it do? I mean, how deep is, is the, the concern in the rift here? Uh, you know, when Biden made this announcement, of course, we know that the president of Mexico said, well, then I'm out. I'm not attending if you're not going to let these people in. To my knowledge, that's about the only one I think that's actually done that. Uh, but is this a non-issue now that once they sit down at the table and get working, or is this going to last for a while? I mean, you know, you talked about the relationships with some of these countries. Uh, you know, the, with the, the trade deals in North America, I mean, Mexico's a player there, too. And is, is, is this going to cause a rift between Mexico and the United States? You know, I, 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 I think it's, it's, it's going to have uh, something more of, uh, of a more subtle impact. I would add, by the way, the president of Chile has also indicated... Uh, that uh, they are opposed to the exclusion of these three countries, mm -hmm. uh, but they're going to take part and, and, and voice their concerns around the table. You know, the Mexican case, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, the Mexican case is something that will spill over into our economic relations. I think, if anything, Mexico has historically used its foreign policy as a way of demonstrating to the rest of the world its independence and separateness from the United States to, in effect, uh, compensate for the general, generally recognized view that economically Mexico is integrated so deeply into North America that it's that set in stone. Um, we're talking about a number of the Latin countries, uh, Mexico and, of course, some South American countries that seem to have some concerns about this. Uh, one of the issues that was a major issue, as we recall, just a few years ago was, was immigration, migration. Uh, from some of those countries uh, through Mexico and right through to the United States. Donald Trump made a big deal about that, of course, uh, building the wall, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that still an issue? Is that something that uh, I don't see it on the agenda with the, the, uh, the articles I've read on that, but it's, is it something that they still are, are, are talking about? You know, it, it, it's an ongoing issue, but the truth is that that especially impacts the Central American states. Yeah. Uh, less rather than the further southern american states you know certainly that item will be on the agenda it will be discussed because for those central american states and for mexico which is right now functioning as a conduit for the flow of these folks uh this is this is an issue that has financial implications for them it's very expensive that has uh it, political implication in terms of the stability of some of these Central American states. So it will certainly find its way onto the agenda, but it is much more specific to the Central American states, less so to the Southern American states.
You know, it's interesting about this, and you've, I think, outlined beautifully about the relationship between the United States and Cuba and, and the political rationale behind Biden's decision to exclude them. Uh, but excluding Venezuela, I find rather interesting. I mean, we have an energy crisis, a global energy crisis right now, and they're a player. And and you'd like to think that they can be at the table here and ha- be part of that discussion because we're still looking for solutions. Well, except, you know, in a sense, the Americans have really dug themselves in, in the previous administration had as well on, on the issue of uh, Venezuela. Uh, that is, they they put their money behind the uh, one of the congressional leaders from the Amer- from the Venezuelan Congress as an alternate leader. They had, came down with heavy sanctions on the current leadership within Venezuela. I mean, simply they're in too deep to do a pirouette and hand out the welcome mat to them. You mentioned, of course, Mexico's expressed some concern about this. Uh, the president is not attending, but are other officials from that government attending? Because I, I know that uh, uh, our foreign affairs minister, uh, Melanie Jolie, who's down there with the prime minister, uh, was supposed to meet with, uh, with the, the Mexican counterpart today. Is, is that off now because the president's not going to be there? No, the Mexico is still sending other officials, including the foreign minister, who will participate uh, on behalf of uh, the Mexican president. Wayne, talk to us about the, the role of the Canadian government here. Uh, as we say, there's a contingent there, and there's always you know people that are going to be a part of the entourage. But the prime minister is there, uh, and of course, uh, uh, we mentioned Melanie Jolie, uh, uh, the environment minister is down there as well. Uh, Canada has always yearned to be a player uh, in NATO, in the G7, whatever the case might be, and, and certainly uh, in this particular conference as well. Uh, how are we viewed uh, globally like that? Are are we a player? I mean, we used to exert a fair bit of of, of influence in a lot of these decisions. Uh, there's an argument to be made now that maybe not so much anymore. What's going to happen and how are we going to be viewed there and how are we going to be welcomed there? Well, historically, uh, the, the, the predecessor organization was known as the Organization of American States, the OAS. And Canada, in, in that, has been a member of that body and has historically uh, tried to carve out a, a, a more progressive path than the United States has with respect to uh, recognizing and, and accepting that the continent of Latin America is bound to be ideologically diverse, never mind the, because of the number of countries there, if for no other reason, and that we have to be become more accepting that there will be, going forward, and a a diversity of opinions, a diversity of approaches to governance, a diversity of approaches to economic development. And you have to accept that diversity and, and work from there. Uh, and that, that's, that's the path Canada has gingerly tried to carve out. So separating itself from, somewhat from the Americans and leaning towards supporting uh, the variety of governments that constitute currently you know, the the organization of American states. The explanation that we've received, and, and not just from this prime minister, but I think uh, some of the past uh, PMs as well, is that, look, at yeah, there's a lot wrong with these, these states, uh, but, you know, it's better to have them at the table, to have these discussions, than to exclude them altogether and, and break off any sense of communication. Is that still a valid argument? Well, you know, certainly uh, one has to acknowledge that many of these states have tremendous challenges, and it, you have to question the wisdom of do you really want to pile another challenge on top of all the other existing ones by isolating them diplomatically? 
so with that in mind, uh, is is that the consensus with the other leaders? Do you think that look at you know we'd rather have them here, even though we can disagree on a number of different issues, including human human rights issues and a number of other things that are going on right now? I'm I'm just wondering about the attitude here and and what they hope to accomplish with this, and what kind of a statement Biden is sending. As you mentioned, it's there's a political reason for that, uh, but there's also a reason for getting together in the fashion that they've done every uh, this way too. And then as soon as you say you can't come and you can't come. Uh, I know a lot of people are going to draw the comparison, whether it's a fair one or not, to say, well, look, at you, you play hardball with Vladimir Putin. Why can't you do it with these guys, too? Uh, it, but they're, they're, And there are economic undertones, certainly, to the decision to boot Russia out of the G8, now, which is now the G7 again, too. Uh, is, is the exclusion of these countries putting those countries in the same uh, basket as, as we have with Russia and, to a certain extent, China? Well, if, if, if that's what people are inferring from it, that, that that's really unfortunate, because these aren't the same uh, cases. Uh, you know, you can disagree with, with countries and uh, in terms of their approach to human rights, in terms of their approach to, to governance matters, uh, in terms of their approach to economic development. But I, I don't think any, any, serious, any serious analyst would suggest that what's happening in, in Cuba or Nicaragua uh, in, in any way looks like what's happening in in russia and and ukraine uh these regimes uh are fully consumed for the most part by their own internal issues uh, having them at the table is it's not a matter of validating them you've made your views clear about what you think of their governance and their behavior and but they're still part of the region they're they they are still part of they share many of the same problems and Collectively, we would benefit if they were part of any solutions. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just what comes out of this conference. Uh, it's, it's going to go on for a few days, and it's a, a pretty challenging agenda. Uh, Wayne, as always, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Professor Wayne Petrosi from the Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on in the Summit of the Americas uh, in Los Angeles. And uh, as we say, Canada looking to play a large role there. And uh, we'll be watching closely just to see whether or not that's going to happen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about you and me and how we're faring or maybe not faring so well. Uh, in this economic circumstance that we're in right now. I mean, the, the simple act of walking into a grocery store these days and looking at some of the prices is, quite frankly, stressing out a lot of Canadians. Don Kelly has details. 38% of people responding to an FP Canada Financial Stress Index survey say money is their biggest source of stress. That's nearly double the number who say personal health, work, or relationships are their biggest stressors. One-third say financial stress is leading to anxiety, depression, or mental health challenges. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Uh, you've all experienced it. I mean, we've talked about this on the program many, many, many times. Gasoline prices, of course, are right up near the top of that list. But, I mean, we have to eat, right? And uh, it's it's awfully frustrating when we see the prices going up almost on a weekly basis now. Uh, the folks at uh, Leisure have done some great work on this to find out just where Canadians are on this issue. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Eddie Shepard. Eddie is the uh, VP of Insights uh, with Leisure. Eddie, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is great. This is uh, difficult times for all of us, I guess. And we look at the gas pumps and what's going on there. We can talk about that. But uh, and, and it's one thing to be outraged. But, you know, when that outrage turns to depression and, and anger and a number of other issues right now, it's almost becoming a public health issue. And Canadians are really being impacted by this, aren't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a real focus on you know on the economic impact, but we're really starting to see the impact on the the personal in terms of the emotional, the physical, the mental health. And as the the inflation keeps going up and the interest rates keep going up, people are really starting to be negatively impacted in terms of just their overall their overall mental and physical health, especially kind of in, in the younger groups where they may have stretched themselves a little too thin in some areas, and it's it's really having an impact on their their personal lives overall. I was surprised by that number, uh, and that's one of the things you guys always do so well is break this down into demographics. You know, and and that eighteen to thirty-five group, oftentimes are the glasses half full types. Yeah, this is pretty rough, but yeah, we'll get through this. You know, thirty-five we'll, percent uh, of them are saying, "Look at this is killing us," and and that's that's a telling number, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. When you look at one in three people in that that kind of age group being impacted by this, it's it's a huge number, and I think the it's kind of the snowball effect coming out of the pandemic or the coming out of the impacts of that, where people were feeling with the effects of isolation in that age group pretty heavily. Now having to deal with this, it's it's kind of really spiraled into um, a more cumulative effect overall. And I think that 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 age group is really they're having to understand ways to use their money they may never have thought of before. Um, they're having to shift their spending and, and adjust what they're looking for in stores and uh, through their share of wallets. So it's having a big impact on that, which is putting the stressors in their overall lives. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing as I was reading uh, the details, the highlights of your report uh, from Leger on this. And uh, the timing couldn't be worse on this. I mean, we've if, if you've been around any length of time, you've gone through economic downturns and maybe even a recession or two in your time. And, and it's a pain in the butt when it happens, but you figure, okay, it's got to end. Uh, but we've just gone through two and a half years of shutdowns, and you, you can't go shopping, and, you know, are you going to have a job when you get back? And that, that was as stressful a time as ever. And now you get all this stuff in, because at the time, uh, a lot of us were told, okay, when we get out of this, when the, you know, this pandemic starts to ease up, it's going to be okay. And we're going to just kind of pick up where we were before uh, and you'll be able to go back to your job. You've got all the saved money that you haven't been able to spend because the stores haven't been open. So we're going to be good. It's going to be a quick bounce back. Well, it's just the opposite, really. I know there are a lot of positive shoots about the economy right now, the employment numbers and things of this nature. But for most people, and I know you guys have found this with a lot of the research you've done in the past, Eddie, it's great to read that in a report and say the economy is starting to turn around. But it's how is it affecting your household? You know, what's the conversation like around the dinner table? It's pretty bleak right now for a lot of Canadians. Yeah, absolutely. I think that with the inflation and interest, they're hitting people in different kind of speeds. So the inflation rates are having an immediate impact in terms of the groceries, the gas, those everyday household items. In terms of the the household debts and, and mortgages and things like that, the interest rates aren't having as immediate of an impact, and we may see that kind of trigger throughout the course of the the summer here, as that you know, as interest with the the July uh, potential and raise in July happening, we'll see the impacts of that kind of grow as well. But right now, it's more of the immediate day to day experiences people are really seeing the effects of, and that's having a, a significant toll in terms of how people are kind of carrying out their everyday lives, whether it's you know buying different items at the grocery store, uh, eating less, takeout less, uh, reducing food waste, spending less money in entertainment. People are doing those more immediate actions, but they haven't really shifted towards how it's going to impact their overall share of wallet in terms of their, you know, their their larger expenses in terms of how they'll manage those. And I think we'll see that kind of play out throughout the next couple of months when the interest rates um, have a significant impact on those various areas. Well, and I've talking to some people about that over the weekend and it was interesting and one analogy was uh, he says it's like when you're lifting weights and okay maybe you can handle the you know the 75 pounds on the barbell but when you keep adding another five another five and mm-hmm. another five uh pretty soon you just can't do it anymore and that's what interest rates are doing we can take this hike okay uh the last one and now we just had another one well i, can, I guess we can still handle it but as this goes on through the summer and we're being told that it is it's depressing 
Well, yeah, our recent report that we we released in May, looking at this, it, uh, we we essentially asked, you know, as interest rates continue to rise, at what point can you no longer afford your house and would have to consider selling? And once you get around that three to four percent hike, um, that's when people have to really consider their ability to actually afford their homes. And then if if you know if it does get to that level, we're going to see a significant turnover in the real estate markets and the housing side of things um, because people just won't be able to sustain what they're currently doing. And, you know the on a moderate level, people can generally handle those those inflation the the bumps. Um, but once you get to that three to four percent range, if that were to come, people are going to be very very significantly impacted by that. And there are alternatives, I guess. So because I think you guys did a survey last month uh, about groceries in particular, and and the the thing is, okay, maybe you shop at grocery store A, and the prices are going way up, and there are discount stores that you can go to. You know, the selection may not be as good, but the prices are, are marginally smaller, uh, and and a lot of us have gravitated to that. But boy, what happens when that becomes uh, uh, out of reach for an awful lot of people? There's not a whole lot of options left, are there? Absolutely no. Once once the, the the discount side of things starts to impact and feel the inflation there as well, people are going to be really struggling to find ways to make ends meet um, and having to cut in certain areas, whether it be their telco uh, insurance and, and those different areas to try and find the money to get through the day to day because people still need to eat. They still need to get to work. Um, so we're going to have to find ways uh, as a society to, to figure out how to handle the inflation while still kind of managing our day to day lives. There's an interesting stat. Well, there's a lot of interesting stats in, in the report. The one I really was uh, interested and fascinated by, uh, you guys found that uh, 44% of respondents say they're starting to track their expenses, uh, some more than they did last year, some who probably haven't done it at all in the past. Uh, you know, when, when the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, you start counting where the dollars are being spent instead of, you know, just looking at your balance, uh, you know, at the end of the month when they send the thing out and say, where did all the money go? We're, we're paying attention as we're spending it now, aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah. And that, this is where the, the younger audience comes into play because they, they kind of, you know, that disposable income nature is really no longer a, a thing where people have to really calculate what they're spending on certain areas each month. Um, and we're definitely seeing a rise as inflation and interest rates go up. We're also seeing people, as you just said, they're more prone to, to tracking their money and seeing where they're spending and trying to find ways to reduce costs to be able to, you know, to sustain others of their lives. So um, we've seen some impacts in terms of people you know, shifting their behaviors in terms of grocery spending and, and uh, their eating. We haven't seen significant shifts just yet in terms of canceling vacations or, or um, you know, adjusting household items or reducing vehicle usage. But there is some indication in, in uh, recent trends that vacations are starting to go down in terms of people having to cancel those um, that they've been planning for the past two and a half years in order to sustain the the impact of the inflation and interest rates. And, and that's really a, a, an issue that we need to discuss, I guess, in greater detail, because we all know that during the pandemic, the hospitality industry and the travel industry were two of the hardest hits, uh, and they just seem to be sort of getting back on their feet, uh, although you look at the long lines up at Pearson Airport these days, and you wonder about that, but, uh, you know, I, what I'm hearing anecdotally from a lot of folks, Eddie, is, yeah, yeah, we'll still take a holiday this year, uh, but we're not going down to Florida or Arizona, or, or we're, we're going to forego that trip to go visit the relatives in Calgary. We'll do something that's around here, and, and you know, we still want to get away, but we just don't have the cash. Uh, and and the, I guess we're not going to hear much about that until we get through the summer. And I know you guys will be tracking that, but th there seems to be a trend toward that direction, doesn't there? 
Yeah, and I think, and that was kind of the trend that took place at the start of the pandemic as well, is that people were more likely to stay local and, and travel within their regions. And I think now there's a great opportunity to do that because there aren't the restrictions in place, so people have a greater ability to travel within their regions. Um, so I think the notion of the staycation or the, the short-haul travel will likely see a bump again this summer as people look to save money on their travel costs. Um, now, again, that will be impacted if gas prices keep increasing as well, so people won't be able to travel as far with the short-haul travel. Um, but there's likely going to be a shift throughout the summer where we see the the anticipated trip over to Europe or, or Asia that will then have to become you know a, a short haul travel trip within the province or within the region. It's it's interesting to see too how people are are responding to this uh, uh, because of the mental health issues. I mean, I, I, as I say, we've all had hardships financially from time to time, and you're trying to stretch your paycheck and, and, and do the best you can under these circumstances, but. You know, when all of a sudden you start thinking, how, I'm not sleeping at night, you know, I, I'm worried about, you know, how are we going to pay this bill and that bill and on and on it goes. It's it's just, it's just it, it's dumping on people right now. And you have to wonder about the long term implications of something like this. We know it's going to get better economically, but uh, I guess the, the question a lot of us are asking ourselves now is what's the collateral damage going to be here? Well, I think it's 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 largely comparable to, to COVID, where there was really no light at the end of the tunnel. So especially in this case here, there's no indication of when this will shift. So that, that uncertainty really impacts people's mental state as well, because they just don't know how long they'll need to sustain this for. So that definitely takes a toll on people's physical and, and mental health, because they the the lack of knowing or lack of certainty plays a, a significant role in people's mindsets so i think that's going to it's going to factor into people over the course of the summer as as the uncertainty continues to kind of rise and um and there's no obvious uh flexibility or you know turn turnarounds in the, the situation how is this going to play out politically? I, I know I'm kind of getting off the beaten path a little bit here, but just I wanted to get your read on that. Uh, you know, there's a debate going on right now in Ottawa. The opposition parties, the NDP and the uh, the Conservatives, are pressuring the government to do something about this and to lower prices, whether it's, you know, reducing taxes, eliminating some taxes temporarily. I know Doug Ford talked about that during the campaign when it came to gasoline. As this continues, and like you say, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, as of yet anyway, uh, do you think they're going to be going after governments now and say, look, you got to do something here? I mean, and they always come back and say, well, we don't control the price of oil, but you do control the taxes. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if the, as the frustration continues here, Eddie, and we figure I can't do anything more, I, I got a sense we're going to be looking to the elected officials and simply say, what are you going to do to help me here? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think there there's some reports coming out where there the politicians are are indicating that they the long term plan is obviously to return to the the standard levels. Um, but in the meantime, there's gonna be a lot of pressures put on uh, politicians to to take action and to to show supports for Canadians because there's a lot of individuals throughout the country who who won't be able to make it through this uh, overly successfully. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of pressure put on the politicians and, and the government to to take action to support individuals. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of very outspoken individuals that that really make a a, a push to have that happen. Well, this is required reading, I think, for anybody who holds public office right now to get a mood uh, indicator from everybody here as to what's going on. I mean, this is a pretty extensive survey, as it always is with Leger. Uh, a number of people, of course, uh, were asked about these sorts of questions. And I know you're going to follow up on this to see just where this is tracking and, and how we're reacting to it. And uh, I would advise, uh, as I say, everybody who's running for office at whatever level, municipally, federally, provincially, or who's already there, uh, is uh, keeping track and with what the folks at Leger are thinking here, too, because uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on people to get something done about this, too. Uh, always a pleasure to have you guys on and always appreciate the great work that you do. Uh, Eddie, thanks for this and appreciate the time today. Thank you very much.
Take care. Eddie Shepard, who is the VP of Insights uh, with Leger Marketing. And uh, I, and we talk about a number of different political issues. But as I say, the, the phrase that comes to mind is, is the now famous phrase from a guy named Tip O'Neill, who used to be the Speaker of the House uh, of Congress, of course, down in the States back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he coined the phrase that all politics is local. Uh, in, in other words, it doesn't matter what they're saying in Ottawa. It, how's it affecting you? How's it affecting your ability to fill your gas tank and to set food on the table, uh, to take some time off and go on a holiday? And if it's a negative impact, well, somebody's going to have to pay the price for that. And uh, that's something where the politicians have to be very, very aware of. And, and they're going to have to reformulate, and maybe rethink some of these policies and some of their projections. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've had a number of discussions on the show uh, about conspiracy theorists and, and some of the stuff you see on social media. And a lot of people who embrace that sort of thing. And we've always, many of us anyway, just kind of categorize them as, okay, they're, they're crackpots. They're you know, a little bit different. And there's even the odd fringe politician who will, you know, advocate for some of those things. But what happens when a politician who wants to be the prime minister of this country starts advocating uh, a number of these theories? Uh, it's the uh, topic of a piece that was written by uh, Justin Ling, who is, of course, a freelance uh, journalist. I saw this one in the Toronto Star. Uh, and it's why Pierre Polyev and some other conservative leader candidates are flirting with a World Economic Forum conspiracy theory that, frankly, is like to the Freedom Convoy that we experienced, of course, in Ottawa uh, this past winter. Uh, always a pleasure to have Justin Ling on the program. Justin, thanks so much for the time. Uh, i, I got to ask you, good to have you with us again and talk about what I think is a very important issue. Uh, it's not about what's being said. It's Oftentimes, it's about who's saying it, but more importantly, who's following it and who's taking advantage of this. I know uh, I think you and I had this conversation back in, in February when the Freedom Convoy made it to Ottawa. Uh, the story was Pierre Polyev actually went and met with the leaders of that. And we figured, well, okay, there's somebody with has got opportunity. It's political opportunism. Uh, but it's a major plank in his platform right now, a number of the things that these guys have been advocating. Uh, it's, it's rather troubling, I think, for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think we would be naive to to look at Polyev's campaign for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada as anything other than a, a concerted attempt to win over those who came out uh, for the convoy in Ottawa. I mean, so much of his language, so much of his policy is specifically uh, catered towards people who are distrustful of the vaccines or at the very least against vaccine mandates. Folks who are fearful of the World Economic Forum uh, due to conspiracy theories that have percolated online, um, people who have some very paranoid ideas about the Bank of Canada and central banking in general, um, you know, folks who are big into Bitcoin, not just as an asset that's worth investing in, but as a way of detaching themselves from what they see as an increasingly um, tyrannical or uh, you know, overarching or overreaching rather uh, federal government. You know, his campaign is increasingly explicit that they want to win over people who um, are paranoid, who are conspiratorial, who don't trust government and institutions. And, and not just a healthy distrust, because obviously a level of distrust of government is necessary in our society, but a paranoid, irrational distrust. And it is... You know, political opportunism as its best. I mean, Pierre Polyev is a guy who's been in politics his entire adult life. This is a guy who increasingly sees politics as a game, and you know he's using these folks as pawns. 
and, and but taking it to the next level. And I mean, we've seen this act before, haven't we, Justin, uh, with with other politicians? Uh, well, Donald sure. Trump comes to mind, but there have been others. Uh, and and one of the basic tenets in a situation like that, if you want to, you know, capitalize on 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 these theories, is you got to focus that on on one individual mm-hmm. or one organization. Because uh, the general thing is, yes, just about every institution in mm-hmm. government uh, is is you know has an ulterior motive. But he's picked. Uh, all of a sudden, the the World Economic Forum, uh, and that in itself is strange, as you write in the piece, uh, because you know back when Stephen Harper was the prime minister, as you so rightly point out, uh, his government, the Conservative Party, and, and most governments around the world hailed this organization uh, for the work that it was doing, and it was the people on the extreme left that were skeptical mm. about this. It, it's changed now in the last ten years. What's happened? So, you know, let's take a quick second and do a bit of a history lesson, right? Because you're quite right that politicians have been doing this for ages. You go back to the 1960s, 70s, 80s, uh, you had the John Birch Society who who were freaked out about a whole bunch of international bodies that were going to install Marxism in America. You go to the 90s. Alex Jones, radio host Bill Cooper, they were freaking out about the Trilateral Commission and the Bilderberg Group. They, those were the ones that were going to implement communism one way or another and, and install a new world order. The 2000s, 2010s, people were freaking out about George Soros. You know, He was this evil Machiavellian you know, Marxist who was um, looking to destroy our democracy and, our, and, and capitalism from abroad. And then more recently, you know, Donald Trump painted this as a deep state that he had to root out of, of Washington. And of course, every single one of these individuals turned out to be a complete crank. Not one of them actually did bubkiss for the working class, right? Nobody actually cared about preserving your rights. No one cared about uh, you know fighting for you know low-wage workers. This was all a ruse to get people angry and fearful and specifically fearful of things overseas, things abroad, things outside your country, some foreign threat. Right? It's xenophobic, it's stupid, it's conspiratorial. And in, in, in not a single instance did any of these, these warnings, these dire predictions come true. What we're seeing right now is a repackaging of that conspiracy theory, this idea of a new world order. It has trappings of anti Semitism, it has trappings of xenophobia. And, and, and fundamentally, Pierre Polyev is just trying to recreate that magic by making the enemy the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. Now, most people, I guarantee you, don't know much about the World Economic Forum beyond maybe the fact that they hold an annual summit of the elites and the the rich and the powerful in Davos, Switzerland. And I think people could be forgiven for thinking that this organization is more powerful than it is or that it's more nefarious than than it, than it sounds um because that's really the only time you hear about it is people talking about how powerful and deranged they are but the reality is this is a think tank this is a think tank that's been around for about a half a century it is a conference where a bunch of powerful people get together and discuss how to slightly tinker with capitalism to make it work a little bit better. You know, this is the definition of a, you know, middle of the road, status quo protecting liberal organization. I don't think it's a good organization particularly. I think it absolutely is a bunch of rich people getting around to just to pat themselves on the back. But do they have some you know, all-powerful ability to dictate what governments ought to do? Are they plotting a one-world socialist takeover? Are they going to install a total um, top-to-bottom digital surveillance state? Are they working with the Chinese to destroy capitalism and bring us all under Beijing's rule? No. 
No, they're not. But that's fundamentally what people are being told. And that's, at the end of the day, what Pierre Polyev is playing into. Uh, you, you, I'm, I'm glad you included this quote from Stephen Harper, too, who, by the way, was a strong supporter of this. And he addressed the uh, uh, the forum back in 2012. And he turned to Schwab and, and sang his praises. You have made the World Economic Forum an indispensable part of the global conversation among leaders mm -hmm. in politics, business, and civil society. That was Stephen Harper, who is still considered, uh, you know, one of the, the stalwarts of the conservative movement, not just the conservative party, uh, for some of his views on so many other things. But there's one oh, phrase... You, you know who and, else is? He's not the only one. John Baer. Our former foreign affairs yes. minister, who I think is quite honestly one of the one of the better foreign affairs ministers we've ever had in this country, I agree totally. Repeated, repeatedly went to the World Economic Forum, and he's co-chairing Pierre Polyev's campaign. I mean, the amount of disingenuousness that goes behind this is just obscene. But does you? latched in and focused in on one phrase here that I think is really the linchpin for Polyev and others, uh, and it's something that has been like so many other things uh misinterpreted uh and mm -hmm. and it's called the great reset uh and maybe mm -hmm. you could explain the history of that phrase and how these guys have embraced it and used it to their advantage yeah so it, you know, it, it, the, the phrase the great reset and and it, it is the perfect encapsulation of, of how this conspiracy theory really takes off and becomes so effective right the great reset is not even a term that was coined by klaus schwab or the world economic forum um i think it was richard florida who who put it in the economist who put it in his book you know, almost a decade ago now and it's basically a term to describe what happens after economic calamity right so after the great depression um after the 2008 financial crisis um it, it sort of describes how governments can approach rebuilding, you know, recrafting society, um, and not in a nefarious way, not in a you know a totalitarian way, but in a way that um, actually tries to mitigate the damage done and prevent it from happening again. So the the New Deal, you know, the FDR's New Deal was uh, the, maybe the perfect embodiment of what this is supposed to be. You know, a a set of measures that are designed to um, close the, the the gap between rich and poor, designed to make uh, society more fair and more effective and more efficient. And the Great Reset is exactly that. And Klaus Schwab sort of, you know, glommed, on, glommed onto it uh, amidst the COVID-19 pandemic early days. He basically you know, put forward a whole bunch of proposals and, and not particularly novel ones, you know, ones that were already being touted by a whole bunch of people around the world, but proposals that were designed to um, shorten the pandemic, you know, things that could improve um, contact tracing, things that could improve healthcare delivery, uh, speed up vaccination, so on and so forth. And to kind of chart a roadmap for what we do afterwards, you know, how we can get um, people back to work quicker, how we could deal with the increase in automation, how we can deal with, you know, increasingly remote work. You know, and again, none of this is controversial. If you actually, I've read the book, if you actually read the book, nothing in there is, is terribly um, exciting or novel. Um, but what happens is that these conspiracy theorists, many of whom have not read the book either, I guarantee you, will take um, bits and pieces from the book, maybe as much as you can get for free on, on Google Books in the preview. You know, they'll take little bits and pieces of it and pull it out and say, this is what they're going to do to us. So there's a section in the book where Schwab talks about contact tracing, and he actually kind of you know, posits that maybe the most effective way of beating the pandemic is uh, you know, enabling everyone's cell phones to, to track where they're going, to track where they are so they can tell other people if they expose them to COVID-19. 
a whole bunch of governments did this, of course. But on the next page, Schwab then says, but you know what? This has some real civil liberty concerns. We can't get into a situation where governments and private companies are constantly tracking us. So we need to figure out a way where either we do this in a way that respects privacy or we don't do it at all. And, and that's exactly what this guy is all about, right? This sort of hand-wringing, middle-of-the-road liberalism that is by no means controversial. It's why he's able to attract every major titan of industry, every major politician from across the political spectrum. It's because he's not controversial, because he is pretty milk toast. But what happens is that because he's able to attract all of these people, the conspiracy theorists describe this as him being um, able to control everybody. They describe him as a puppet master. There's means of him pulling the strings of every world leader. You know, there's this insinuation that he has compromise on all these politicians or that he is part of a secret society. He's the head of the Illuminati or, you know, all this other stuff. And it's complete hokum. It's nonsense. It's BS. Yet uh, Pierre Polyev is happy to play into it. He's happy to take advantage of those who believe it. And folks are fundraising uh, and, and, and recruiting members and organizing events on the back of this nonsense. And, and frankly, it's really disheartening. But the characterizations that they use, and by, and by the way, I, I agree. I, I've had Richard Florida on the show, and I, uh, he's he's not controversial. He's innovative, and you can agree or disagree with his mm-hmm. ideas. I, I get that totally. But it's like the Bible. I mean, you can find a phrase in the mm-hmm. Bible uh, and, and use it to your purpose, uh, and many people have had for all the wrong reasons, okay? Um, the most read book in, in all the, the world, I guess. But you can take a line out of there. An eye for an eye means, uh, yeah, that means we're in favor of the death penalty, uh, that, that yeah. sort of thing. But they portrayed, first of all, Schwab in this fashion, and and Trudeau, of course, is is you know he's the acolyte for Lord Voldemort in, in this whole order. You know that's why he encouraged vaccination because they're putting little chips in you so that they can control it. There's there's an Orwellian theme to what they're doing here, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and what what's so frustrating to me is that this is always framed as you know a a uh, a fight for the little guy. We're going to protect you, working class hero, against these evil elites in Europe. But what's, what's fundamentally behind this is not, it's not a, a struggle for the working class. It's really a defense of the status quo. And in many cases, it's, it's defensive policies that will make life harder for working class people. I'm not saying that about necessarily Pierre Polyev's campaign. I mean, I, I think there's actually good things in his policy book when it's not being tailored towards conspiracy theorists. But if you look at someone like Donald Trump, Here's a guy who convinced a ton of working class people that all you need to do is throw out these elites, throw out these swamp creatures, get rid of George Soros, get rid of Hillary Clinton and her cabal, and everything will be great. And how did that turn out? Right. You know, life actually got harder for a lot of working class people uh, under Donald Trump. And it certainly got a lot harder during the pandemic. Who made off like bandits? The rich, the very people who Donald Trump kept saying he was going to fight against. Right. So fundamentally, there, there, there is an instance here of, of trickery and of, of subterfuge. You know, the ones the ones who are uh, you know claiming to throw out the elites and the rich are the ones defending them in many cases. It's just different elites and different rich than the ones they're talking about. So I, I think we really have to be cognizant of when we're being sold a bill of goods here, right? I think we need to focus hard on the actual things we can fix that will actually make a difference in people's lives. And, and certainly if you're a conservative party member, there are candidates doing that, right? There are candidates, you know, whether, um, you know, whether it's someone like, 
I'd say even even Roman Baber, who I think I don't agree with on, on barely anything, at least he had the common decency to come out and say the World Economic Forum stuff is complete nonsense and we're being distracted by it. Now, he also has ties to other conspiracy theories, but at the very least, he had the honesty to come out and say this thing is all is all nonsense. But if you look at someone like Scott Atchison, here's a guy who's talking about um, you know getting rid of supply management to make uh, the, the price of groceries cheaper for people. You have someone like... Um, you know, uh, Jean Charest, also Atchison as well. I mean, I'm kind of fond of the guy, you know, he's talking about a policy that would actually speed up housing development in this country that actually would get people affordable homes. Um, you have someone like uh, Patrick Brown, who's actually po- proposing some really common sense solutions on how to fix gun reform. You know, these guys are actually serious in a lot of respects. And Pierre Polyev is out there talking about magical fairy tales. It's just so he can raise money and get people whipped up. And it is so cynical. It is so dangerous. And I think we really have to stand up and say, no, you know what? We're not doing this. We're not playing this game. Uh, We're not pawns for you to use in your little leadership race. You know, we actually want to talk about solutions that will actually help people in this country not scare them. I only got about a minute left, but I guess the you know the foundation for a lot of this, and and I don't know, I had a, we had a similar conversation some weeks ago, and one listener asked afterwards, "Does Paulia believe all this stuff?" I don't know, I, I, and it, I, it's almost irrelevant because it's out there and he's spreading it, uh, and it, it, the foundation for that, of course, is we know statistically that with all this information or misinformation out there in social media, we tend to gravitate to places that will substantiate our point of view. We're not looking for information mm-hmm. here. We're looking for validation for our points of view. And he's playing that card, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, I, I if I can do a little self-plug here, I started a, a newsletter recently on Substack. I call it Bug-Eyed and Shameless because fundamentally <laughs> the people who hawk these conspiracy theories are either bug-eyed, they're either true believers and are genuinely paranoid and genuinely out to lunch, or they're shameless. They're willing to be grifters. They're willing to take your money, to take your support and sell you lies because they know it's going to work. And I think Pierre Polyev is shameless. He has through his entire political career been shameless. This guy has been in politics his entire life. And I've dealt with him over the years. The guy is whip smart. He is super competent, but mm-hmm. he knows exactly what he's doing. And he really has no scruples as long as he's winning. Uh, you can go to the Toronto Star website, by the way. Uh, you can pick this up at uh, thestar.com uh, slash politics uh, and read the article in its, in its entirety because it's, it's an eye opener. Uh, always a pleasure, Justin. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.